Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. Strephon and Chloe, a poem by Jonathan Swift, uh, probably from 1731. We got it from a collection called The Poetical Works of Jonathan Swift, Volume 2, first published in 1866. I got 1734 in my research, but okay. at this distance, needn't quibble over three years. Indeed. Maybe 1731 was the year of, of writing and 34 is publication. Um, I have a sneaking suspicion, and I, I'm just basing this on what the poem itself and my reading of it, that this might have been like given as a, I don't know, a wedding toast? <laughs> <laughs> if so. It, it may have been. It does mention Epithalamian, which is a yeah. a gift poem for a wedding. Yeah. And it and uh, if so, I think it would make a very funny um, wedding toast sort of poem. Um, and I think it would be great if you would read it for us. Well, alrighty then, I will. Thank you. Streffen and Chloe. Of Chloe, all the town has rung by every size of poets sung. So beautiful a nymph appears, but once in 20,000 years. By nature formed with nicest care and faultless to a single hair, her graceful mien, her shape and face confessed her of no mortal race. And then so nice and so genteel, such cleanliness from head to heel, no humors gross or frowsy steams, no noisome whiffs or sweaty streams before, behind, above, below could from her taintless body flow would so, so discreetly things dispose. None ever saw her pluck a rose. Her dearest comrades never caught her, squat on her hams to make maids water. You'd swear that so divine a creature felt no necessities of nature. In summer, had she walked the town, her armpits would not stain her gown. At county dances, not a nose could, in the dog days, smell her toes. Her milk-white hands, both palms and backs, like ivory dry and soft as wax, her hands the softest ever felt, though cold would burn, though dry would melt. Dear Venus, hide this wondrous maid, nor let her loose to spoil your trade. While she engrosseth every swain, you but o'er half the world could reign. Think what a case all men are now in, what ogling, sighing, toasting, vowing, what powdered wigs, what flames and darts, what hampers full of bleeding hearts, what sword knots, what poetic strains, what do and clouded canes. But Strephon sighed so loud and strong, he blew a settlement along and bravely drove his rivals down with coach and six and house in town. The bashful nymph no more withstands because her dear papa commands, the charming couple now unites, proceed we to the marriage rites. Imprimis, at the temple porch, 
stood Hymen with a flaming torch. The smiling Cyprian goddess brings her infant loves with purple wings and pigeons billing, sparrows treading, fair emblems of a fruitful wedding. The muses next in order follow, conducted by their squire, Apollo. Then Mercury with silver tongue and Hebe, goddess ever young, behold the bridegroom and his bride. Walk hand in hand and side by side, she by the tender graces dressed, but he by Mars in scarlet vest. The nymph was covered with her flamium, and Phoebus sang the epithalamian. And last, to make the matter sure, Dame Juno brought a priest demure. Luna was absent on pretense. Her time was not till nine months hence. The rites performed, the parson paid, in state returned the grand parade with loud huzzas from all the boys that now the pair must crown their joys. But still the hardest part remains. Strephon had long perplexed his brains how with so high a nymph he might demean himself the wedding night. For as he viewed his person round, mere mortal flesh was all he found. His hand, his neck, his mouth, and feet were duly washed to keep him sweet. With other parts that shall be nameless, the ladies else might think me shameless. The weather and his love were hot. And should he struggle? I know what. Why let it go if I must tell it? He'll sweat, and then the nymph may smell it. While she, a goddess dyed in grain, was unsusceptible to stain. And Venus-like, her fragrant skin, exhaled ambrosia from within. Can such a deity endure a mortal human touch impure? How did the humbled swain detest his prickled beard and hairy breast? His nightcap bordered round with lace could give no softness to his face. Yet, if the goddess could be kind, what endless raptures must he find? And goddesses have now and then come down to visit mortal men, to visit and to court them too. A certain goddess, God knows who, as in a book he heard it read, though Colonel Pel- took Colonel Peleus to her bed. But what if he should lose his life by venturing on his heavenly wife? For Strephon could remember well that Once he heard a schoolboy tell how simile of mortal race by thunder died in Jove's embrace. And what if daring Strephon dies by lightning shot from Chloe's eyes? While these reflections filled his head, the bride was put in form to bed. He followed, stripped, and in he crept, but awfully his distance kept. Now, ponder well, ye parents, dear. Forbid your daughters guzzling beer and make them every afternoon forbear their tea or drink it soon that ere to bed they venture up, they may discharge it every sup. If not, they must in evil plight be forced to rise at night. Keep them to wholesome food confined, nor let them taste what causes wind. Tis this the sage of Samos means, forbidding his disciples beans. Oh, think what evils must ensue. Miss Moll, the jade, will burn it blue. And when she once has got the art, she cannot help it for her heart. But out it flies even when she meets her bridegroom in the wedding sheets. 
carminative, and diuretic, will damp all passion sympathetic, and love such nicety requires one blast will put out all his fires. Since husbands get behind the scene, the wife should study to be clean, nor give the smallest room to guess the time when wants of nature press. But after marriage, practice more decorum than she did before to keep her spouse deluded still and make him fancy what she will. In bed, we left the married pair. Tis time to show how things went there. Strephon, who had been often told that fortune still assists the bold, resolved to make his first attack. But Chloe drove him fiercely back. How could a nymph so chaste as Chloe with constitution cold and snowy, permit a brutish man to touch her. Even lambs by instinct fly the butcher. Resistance on the wedding night is what our maidens claim by right. And Chloe, tis by all agreed, was made in thought and word and deed. Yet some assign a different reason that Strephon chose no proper season. Say, fair ones, must I make a pause or freely tell? the secret cause. (laughs) Twelve cups of tea, with grief I speak, had now constrained the nymph to leak. This point must needs be settled first. The bride must either void or burst. Then see the dire effect of peas. Think what can give the colic ease. The nymph oppressed before, behind, as ships are tossed by waves and wind, steals out her hand by nature led and brings a vessel into bed. Fair utensil as smooth and white as Chloe's skin, almost as bright. Strephon, who heard the fuming rill, as from a mossy cliff distill, cried out, Ye gods, what sound is this? Can Chloe, heavenly Chloe? (laughs) But when he smelt a noisome steam, which oft attends that lukewarm stream, Salerno, both together joins as sovereign medicines for the loins, and though contrived we may suppose to slip his ears, yet struck his nose. He found her, while the scent increased, as mortal as himself at least. But soon, with the like occasion pressed, he boldly sent his hand in quest, inspired with courage from his bride, to reach the pot on t'other side. And as he filled the reeking vase, (laughs) let fly a rouser in her face. The little cupids hovering round, as pictures prove, with garlands crowned, abashed at what they saw and heard, flew off, nor evermore appeared. Adieu to ravishing delights, high raptures and romantic flights, to goddesses so heavenly sweet, expiring shepherds at their feet, to silver meads and shady bowers, dressed up with amaranthine flowers. How great a change, how quickly made! They learn to call a spade a spade. They soon from all constraint are freed, can see each other do their need. On box of cedar sits the wife and makes it warm for dearest life. And by the beastly way of thinking, find great society in stinking. Now Strephon daily entertains his Chloe in the homeliest strains, and Chloe, more experienced grown with interest, pays him back his own. No maid at court is less ashamed 
however, for selling bargains famed than she to name her parts behind or when abed to let out wind. Fair decency, celestial maid, descend from heaven to beauty's aid. Though beauty may beget desire, tis thou must fan the lover's fire. For beauty, like supreme dominion, is best supported by opinion. If decency brings no supplies, opinion falls and beauty dies. To see some radiant nymph appear in all her glittering birthday gear, you think some goddess from the sky descended, ready cut and dry. But ere you sell yourself to laughter, consider well what may come after. For the for fine ideas vanish fast, while all the gross and filthy last. Oh, Streffen, ere that fateful day when Chloe stole your heart away, had you but through a cranny spied on House of Ease your future bride, in all the postures of her face, which nature gives in such a case, distortions, groanings, strainings, heavings, were better you had licked her leavings than from experience find too late your goddess grown a filthy mate. Your fancy then had always dwelt on what you saw and what you smelt would still the same ideas give ye as when you spied her on the privy and spite of Chloe's charms divine your heart had been as whole as mine. Authorities both old and recent Direct that women must be decent, and from the spouse each blemish hide more than from the world at beside. Unjustly all our nymphs complain their empire holds so short a reign is after marriage lost so soon it hardly matters, it hardly holds the honeymoon. For if they keep not what they caught, it is entirely their own fault. They take possession of the crown and then throw all their weapons down. Though by the politician's scheme, who e'er arrives at power supreme, those arts by which at first they gain it, they still must practice to maintain it. What various ways our females take to pass for wits before a rake, and in the fruitless search pursue all other methods but the true. Some try to learn polite behavior by reading books against their savior. Some call it witty to reflect on every natural defect. Some show they never want, explaining to comprehend a double meaning. But sure a telltale out of school is all of wits is of all wits the greatest fool, whose rank imagination fills her heart and from her lips distills. You'd think she'd uttered from behind or at her mouth was breaking wind. Why is a handsome wife adored by every coxcomb but her lord? From yonder puppet man inquire who wisely hides his wood and wire, shows Sheba's queen completely dressed and Solomon in royal vest, but view them littered on the floor or strung on pegs behind the door, punch is exactly of a piece with Lorraine's duke and prince of Greece. A prudent builder should forecast how long the stuff is like to last and carefully observe the ground to build on some foundation sound. What house, when its materials crumble, must not inevitably tumble? What edifice can long endure, raised on a basis unsecure? Rash mortals, 
ere you take a wife, contrive your pile to last for life. Since beauty scarce endures a day, and youth so swiftly glides away, why will you make yourself a bubble to build on sand with hay and stubble? On sense and wit your passion found, by decency cemented round, let prudence with good nature strive to keep esteem and love alive. Then come old age when e'er it will, your friendship shall continue still, and thus a mutual gentle fire shall never but with life expire. <laughs> it's hard to restrain oneself from laughing. Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, you did a great job of not not bursting out in laughter during that. Um, I. <laughs> I, I, I barely restrained myself. I think it's this is just some of the funniest stuff I've ever read. <laughs> he sets it up well, so well. But tell us more. What do you like about it? Oh, oh, it's it's. I mean, it's so a fart funny. joke, but it, it, well, yes, it's 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 scatological humor, right? Um, there's a there's a hilarious um tiny little uh, Wikipedia entry on. Um, on an incident when Margaret Thatcher went to a Mozart museum. Um, I, I want to read this because I think it's just hilarious because it's, it's about exactly what this, this poem's about. Um, uh, she was not pleased in her best headmistress style. She gave me a severe wigging for putting on a play that depicted Mozart as a scatological imp with love of four-letter words. It was inconceivable, she said, that a man who wrote such exquisite and elegant music could be so foul-mouthed. I said that Mozart's letters proved that he was just that. He had an extraordinarily infantile sense of humor. I don't think you heard what I said, replied the Prime Minister. He couldn't have been like that. I offered and sent a copy of Mozart's letters to number 10 the next day. I was even thanked by the appropriate private secretary, but it was useless. The prime minister said I was wrong, so I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And and I was reading some of these Mozart letters, and they are (laughs) incredibly uh, scatological. Um, It's it's the divine with the the puerile, right? The... uh, uh, he he sets this up so well so that we've got this this goddess right who 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 no one could even consider having a, a sweated ever on her gown and when when the time comes to deflower her she's busy peeing right? in a very noisy way in a in a bed pot <laughs> a chamber yes, pot baby. I think that's so funny, and uh, it's it's kind of a um, uh, it's something that I think every marriage would probably have to deal with at some point, right? That <laughs> I got, don't know. I only know about one. <laughs> uh, well, you know, having having the door to the bathroom door closed is probably a good thing, in a certain sense. It keeps some sort of mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all right. <laughs> <laughs> He's very, very funny, man. Swift is so funny. I can't, I can't stand how funny he is. Wow. Well, I, I've got to say that um, I like, I, I like the 
uh, obvious, um, explicit, I guess I should say. I like the explicit uh, silliness. Um, her hand sneaks over and she gets the chamber pot. Inspired by her, his hand sneaks over and get the chamber pot. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, the, the explicit stuff here is is humorous. In fact, one can even imagine um, filming it. Mm. What I what I like, even at least as much, and sometimes more, is the stuff that is less explicit. For example, in that first four lines of Chloe, all the town has rung by every size of poets sung, right? I mean, it's not by every poet sung, but by the tall ones and the short ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. Who cares? You know, about, anyway, so beautiful and nymph appears, but once in 20,000 years. How does anybody know since human history doesn't go back 20,000 <laughs> years? It's, it's a bizarre hyperbole, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there is all kinds of wonderful rhetoric here. There is also um, lots of literary reference, which uh, it's unlikely that uh, our ordinary reader in the 21st century would catch. But um, there's a line, um, for instance, no noisome whiffs or sweaty streams before, behind, above, below could from her taintless body flow. OK, well, OK, I get that. I think this is a reference and. Dunn's Elegy 19 is called To His Mistress Going to Bed. Mm. Um, It's one of his, believe it or not, anyway, it was written probably in the late 16th century, which puts it um, at at least 100, around 150 years earlier than this. Um, And this is what Dunn writes. License my roving hands and let them go. Before, behind, between, above, mm. below. Oh, my America, my newfound land, my kingdom, safeliest when with one man manned, mine of precious stones, my empire, how blessed am I in this disco- thus discovering thee. To enter in these bonds is to be free. Then shall my, where my hand is set, shall my seal shall be. Okay, now. This is too much. His mistress going to bed. I mean, he's talking about her being a newfound land, as America was at the mm-hmm. beginning, uh, first third of the 17th century. And he says, license my hands and let them go before, behind, between, above, below. Well, here, before, behind, above, below could from her taintless body flow. I, I think it's pretty clear that uh, Swift knew Dunn. I mean, knew his work. And he's taking this really um, sexy poem, Elegy 19, really sexy poem of Dunn's and turning it upside down into, my God, look at all the places the woman could leak from. You know? <laughs> um, or, for instance, uh, he says, um, would so discreetly things dispose, none ever saw her pluck a rose. And I started to pluck a rose. Why would you care if she mm-hmm. plucked rose? But then I remembered good old Cockney rhyming slang, yep. which goes back <laughs> hundreds of years, right? Yep. None ever saw her pick her nose. Yep. Hey, you, know, so, yeah. you know, it's it's not enough that he just doesn't write the word piss and we have to fill it in. And I paused so that that would be obvious. Um, but there's all this other stuff that he puts in there. But what I ultimately like the best, I've got to say, and maybe this is because I have been married for over 50 years um, and all to the same woman, by the way, um, that 
that last eight lines after he goes through all of this silliness and, and which has a lot of truth to it. I mean, mm-hmm. let's face it. People do not look particularly erotic when they are groaning and contorting their faces. Um, but then at the end, he says, and this is why I, I like what you said to me before we actually began broadcasting, uh, taping, I should say, Jesse, you said this sounds like it may have been read at a wedding. Mm. He does refer to we and us. But then it's as if he had a toast, you know, he'd read the whole yep. thing. And then he turns to the couple and he says, on sense and wit, your passion found, right? By decency cemented round, let prudence with good nature strive to keep esteem and love alive. Then come old age, when e'er it will, your friendship shall continue still. And thus a mutual gentle fire shall never but with life expire. What great advice mm. to give to the marriage couple. This is really a, a long, terrific, funny, funny joke that builds up to why it is that there's other stuff besides sex and the marriage night that you need to be thinking of, and then you'll have long-lasting, valuable joy in each other. I think it's just a wonderful end. It just justifies all of the the fun that came. <laughs> it, it's a, it, it is it is a very he saves it from just being a um, a uh, a scatological you know joke poem, which it is. Um, it but is. It, he turns it into yeah, like this is it feels like it it should be a um, a wedding toast of some kind, or um, he wasn't he a minister. Um, uh, he, he was, yes, he's a dean, but, uh, you know, he was, um, he, he was not a religious man. He, he was ordained and he, that was his office, but, uh, yeah, but he's, he's going to be at weddings. This is exactly. And I, I also like that, um, we don't see it for the first bit, but there is a narrator and he, he calls himself out a couple of times. He says, with other parts that shall be nameless, the ladies else might think me shameless. There's the me, right? Right. Um, the, there is a person telling this story. And and then mm-hmm. a couple lines down. Why let it go if I must tell it? He'll sweat and then the nymph <laughs> may smell it. Um, <laughs> right. The, the narrator peeks his head out every once in a while to, to point out that this, you know, um, I'm telling a story here. Here he pops out again. And spite of Chloe's charms divine, your heart had been as whole as mine. Um, I think that he he's he's an older, wiser man giving sort of advice to a couple uh, on their wedding day. It feels like that's what this is for. Um, I actually uh, did I tell you how I found this poem? No. Oh, it's very interesting. Um, I'm I've got a book of H.P. Lovecraft poems. Um, called uh what's the it's the ancient track the poetical works of hp lovecraft and Mm -hmm. one of them was um in the sort of the humor and juvenilia section or maybe it was just the humor humor section and i thought no no it's it's in the wrong section it's a it's a poem about a uh, mermaid it's called unda or the bride of the sea and he he starts it subtitles it a dark Sorry, a dull, dark, drear, dactylic delirium in 16 silly, senseless, sickly stanzas. And 
it is exactly like this. It, it flows in the same way. Uh, black loom the crags of the uplands behind me. Dark are the sands of the far-stretching shore. Dim are the pathways and rocks that remind me, sadly, of years and lost nevermore. So it starts off very um, serious, and then it becomes hilarious as we find this young swain who chases after uh, a mermaid. Um, but it ends with a epilogue that is um, advice to young men. <laughs> and, and that's where I found out, oh, there's this other poem that he's sort of, in the same way that Swift is, is following in a tradition, Lovecraft's following in Swift's tradition. So here's the epilogue for Unda or the Bride of the Sea. As the rash fool, a prey of Unda's art, drowns through the passions of his fevered heart, so are our youth inflamed by tempers fair, bereft of reason and manly air. How sad the sight of Strephon's virile grace, turned to confusion at Chloe's face, and ere the Pleiades, dear to Grecian eyes, sulking for loss for the thrice-cherished prize, brothers, attend! If, care, if cares too sharply vex, gain rest by shunning the destructive sex. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yes, he's going the other way, right? Um, he sure is. But I think, I think that the, uh, when he read this poem, he was inspired um, in the same way it sounds like that Swift was inspired, at least in part, by that John Dunn, was it? Yeah, it's Dunn. There's also, I think, uh, there's a whole tradition of this. I, I don't know. I, I meant to look this up. I, I don't know when the the uh, thousand and one Arabian Nights um, first became available. Yeah. Well, I don't know when it first became available. Um, I know that Fitzgerald's famous translation is later, but um, there is in that collection a a a section, uh, one of the, the tales is called the historic fart. And it is about how, uh, I, I won't tell the story now, we haven't the time, but it's, you know, how a fart is the most memorable thing about an individual. Um, and of course, one of, one of the most famous uh, works of poetry before the 18th century, and even before Shakespeare, is the Canterbury Tales. Mm -hmm. And the Miller's Tale is one long extended fart joke about <laughs> someone being cuckolded. Um, and it doesn't have this wonderful coda. Now, I've got to ask about this coda, you know, because all these things that go unsaid, you know, you said this might be an epithalamian. So here's the section. The nymph was covered with her flamium. That's a, a Roman veil that you wear. Oh, bride it's wears orange. Arm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the nymph was covered with her flamian and Phoebus, that is Apollo, uh, the squire of the muses as it's fashioned here, sung the epithalamian and last to make the matter sure, Dame Juno brought a priest demure, demure Luna, who is the goddess of, uh, uh, among other things, uh, menstrual flow, right, the monthly, Luna was absent on pretense her time was not till nine months hence. Mm -hmm. And you got to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is, is Chloe already pregnant? Is, is that why <laughs> the father was so keen on having her finally marry this guy who was rich enough to blow all of the uh, suitors out of the town because he had the coach and six and the townhouse? This is all, it can be all reread as economics 
class structure, um, sexual laws. I mean, this whole poem has a whole other thing going on. So underneath the laughter, there is the pain of what courtship is like in the 18th century upper middle class. And then we come to, but you know what? Really, it's you two guys who've got to stay together. Uh, Finally, I think it's a poem that makes me sort of sit back and smile and think, you know, maybe Betty and I are going to try another 50 years. (laughs) Oh, it's so, I mean, this is just the funniest. I, I cannot believe how funny it is. Um, it, 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 I mean, it is. It's 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 sweet and it's beautiful. It's very human, but he set it up with all these gods attending the wedding, right? And then um, Strephon says, "Wait, wait, is she peeing right now?" <laughs> 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 and then the the cupids who are, are attending the this you know the uh, the wedding night, <laughs> the little cupids hovering round as pictures prove with garlands crowned, abashed at what they saw and heard flew off never nor ever more appeared <laughs> right um the, the um the, the uh the divine part of it um is is suddenly revealed to be oh no everybody's human here this uh goddess who can only appear once in every 20,000 years and we get so many setups um in the illusions within this poem saying you know when this god deigned to have a baby with this you know mortal and this mortal had a baby with this goddess right and how sometimes this resulted in the destruction of the human like if you look at the allusions to the gods all all mentioned um you know it's it's clear that this is you know this is it's dangerous when the gods and the and the humans meet sometimes it it gives the seeds of destruction you know the destruction of troy and here no it's just humans everybody's here is just humans and uh and it's funny and 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 very human yeah so the couple can go off to bed but for the rest of us at the celebration we'll raise a toast because there's always more to say Remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep.